Welcome to the Good Bad Mad podcast, a show that's here to share the ins and outs of creative careers, connecting the aspirational with the experienced, with your host, me, Meg Ellis. My guest for this episode is award-winning cinematographer Denson Baker. Now, Denson has worked on feature films, music videos, documentaries, and commercials. He'll talk us through his role throughout the filmmaking process, and we'll use the luminaries as a bit of a case study. Hope you enjoy it. Denson, hi. Hey, how are you, Meg? How are you? Are you in London at the moment, then? I am, yes, yeah. Although, uh, going to be... uh heading up to the West Midlands in a couple of weeks to start pre-production on a on the next project. Very exciting. Mm. Am I allowed to ask what it is? Yeah, you can. It's uh, called The Colour Room. Um, it hasn't been announced yet, so I can't. I mean, it's not that I can't say that much about it, but mm-hmm. probably shouldn't. I'm a little bit uh, superstitious as well. Fair enough. I, yeah, Fair enough. I find if you start talking too much about a project that hasn't started yet, it sometimes doesn't work out the way you hoped and then you're embarrassed because then people saying what happened to that project you were doing <laughs> no I get that I get that you hype it up a bit too much for people yeah I see I see well I'm but so it's, a, it's a really good one yeah well actually this is a long time coming this is one we were to be shooting last year and uh and now it's all finally back on oh well good for you very, well done very happy to yeah and it's, it's one that my wife's directing I'm not sure if you're aware my wife's a, a director we've, we've done a number of films and tv shows together I did I did I'm gonna ask about that (laughs) oh okay (laughs) is it like what's it like working with your director and wife at the same time so thank you so much for agreeing Mm. to um have a chat with me today pleasure um our our whole vibe is trying to find out a bit more about kind of the ins and outs of certain roles within creative industries and just really Mm. kind of bring the more unusual roles some clarity to to those who are interested in sure. maybe just how how art is made but also for those who want to kind of think about pursuing these roles themselves so i guess we should kind of start with what does a cinematographer do how would you kind of surmise your role yeah well in short the uh cinematographer is uh the one who is has the role of creating the visual style of a movie, TV series, commercial music video. It's, it's lighting, it's camera, it's lensing, it's framing. And, and uh, the production designer will put what's in front of the camera. And uh, then it's my role to capture it from the right angles and collaborate with those around me to uh, create the visual style. But it also is so much more than that. I mean, I love creating the atmosphere of a world, but it's also so uh, much of it is, storytelling and it's about the um it's also a a managerial role as well I'm, I'm a head of a department which has lighting team the mm-hmm. the grips and the all the camera assistants and various specialist camera operators and so it's also um yeah it's a leadership role which uh you know I'm in charge of yeah. creating the, the look of a show no it's, it's it's very multifaceted isn't it and it's it's certainly mm. one of the biggest roles that you can have within with a within a film set but I think you're right it's like you've got the art element the technical element and then also the people element and you're kind of Mm. trying to run around balancing all these things all the time yes so so when do you become part of the process do you become involved like right at the beginning pre-production 
Yeah, well, it, it varies. Yeah, sometimes it's as a production is financed and ready to shoot, they then go out to a crew and start finding the best people for the role. Mm. But I often also find that I'm often coming on board a project very early on uh, stages, particularly if it's a director that I've worked before. Yeah. Um, where you will often start talking about a project and I'll be involved in some early development or would read a script and ask an opinion on, on what I thought of it. And we'll often do lookbooks and various things which will help uh, to get a project financed as well, um, which isn't something all cinematographers will do, but it's something that I often find myself involved in. Is that, I mean, I guess if, if you're pitching yourself, if, if you're kind of going for a job and you're mm. not, you, you haven't had a past working relationship with the director, um, is that something you would do? You would just put a lookbook together with your ideas and that kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, more of the lookbooks I'm doing are with the director once mm -hmm. I'm already on board to then show financiers or for cast if we're trying to attract some higher end cast because mm -hmm. you know there's there's a if you're one of a, a pile of thirty scripts on someone's desk, it's material like that that really helps you stand out. But yeah. it is something that's become more and more a thing for. Um, cinematographers to pitch on a on a job which is something mm. I, I hadn't really done much in the past usually it's on the strength of your showreel and your previous work and right. um, having a meeting with the with the director but there's been the occasional job where they're they the you know director and producer want to meet a range of dps and they'll uh, ask all of them to to pitch on it mm. and I've, I've often sometimes not get a got a job because i was shooting something else and didn't have a lot of time to put in yeah as much time as others did and then would later be told oh that person just did a really great really great pitch so we gave them yeah. the gig which is interesting yeah I mean it is because it's it's an interest like I can wave my hands around and describe how I'd shoot a show um, and it would just it, it can mean so much more to actually present a, a, yeah. a little booklet or you know a, a pdf of imagery and particularly yeah. isolating different scenes and how you may shoot them. I mean, that's just such a better uh, communication tool. Definitely. I mean, mm. people are, are visual beings, really, at the end of the day. Mm. I think that's why film relates to people so well. So how long have you been a cinematographer? Professionally, uh, 20 years now. But I was shooting, as a, as a kid, I was making movies with my toys and uh, little video cameras and doing little things. I mean, I actually originally started out wanting to be a, a director. Well, I thought it was, it was a director was the, was the thing for, yeah. uh, that I wanted to do. And um, I just found more and more from, as a, as a student, I went to art school and there was, mm. as an art school student with my eye on directing, I just found more and more that it was the directing the visuals that was really where my passion was having my hands on the camera and making those decisions with the lighting and the atmosphere was really what I what I enjoyed the most and so I found that being a director of photography was was my thing so yeah it's about about 20 years now so so you knew from quite a young age that you wanted to do something very creative um, something film orientated yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, I didn't really know what it all entailed when I first started doing it, but I just had an absolute love of movies and I loved creating worlds that didn't necessarily exist. And yeah. I you know, had a pretty good imagination as a kid. And I just wanted to be able to express those. I think there was a point there where I thought I wanted to be a, a painter or a designer, but mm -hmm. I just, it wasn't, I wasn't able to express myself as much as you can when you've got a camera and I mean also I wasn't necessarily that good at painting perhaps maybe that <laughs> could have been part of it 
but I think that's that's the that's the thing for for most filmmakers. You've got a vision in your head and you want to share it with people, and you know you, you find ways of uh, expressing that. Was that quite an easy an easy choice for you then to go to art school to go to? Um, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, I sort of I didn't really know what was the clearest and best path uh, coming out of high school, and mm. I mean, I thought it was to go to university and and study film. There's a lot of universities that have film courses. A lot of them are probably more theory based than than practical. I ended up going to an art school in Australia uh, and um, in Western Australia called the WA School of Art and Design, and they had a media design course, which I sort of, I kind of fell into it. It wasn't what I thought I was wanting to do, but yeah. in, in reflection, it was the perfect course for me. It was, mm -hmm. it started off with art history and we did, we did painting, graphic design, typography. We started doing stills photography in black and white and, and printing our own photos before getting to the point where we were starting to make our own films and we were shooting them on 16 mil film. Right. And, um, and it was, it was such a great journey because it gave me much more of a grounding and understanding of of art in general. I think mm. I, it, well, at the time I thought, oh, art history so boring. But then the the, the wealth of knowledge that I've gained from looking at the great masters and looking at craft, looking at how they composed that that painting from hundreds of years ago, and I, I can see it and I've identified it. So yeah, having a, having an arts background and a more practical approach to to filmmaking. Was good. There was still a lot of art theory, and then I went to uh, film school after that, the Australian Film Television Radio School, which um, which is a post postgraduate school. But I went in there already very clearly knowing I wanted to be a cinematographer, and they mm -hmm. only accepted four uh, in each category: four cinematographers, four directors, four editors, writers. Right. Yeah, so I I, you know, I was um, yeah ready to really focus on what they were teaching there, which was much more. You know, there was a lot of film theory, and we watched a lot of films, but it was getting right into the nitty gritty and, and making your own high high end quality yeah. film productions. And mm. those kind of first four or five years out of postgrad for you, what were they like? Like what was the biggest learning curve that hit you? Yeah, I I, I'm, I was actually very fortunate coming out of uh, film school because I, even when I was a student there, like, and I knew that uh, that the, the thing that would get me progressing in my career was having a really great showreel and I was yeah. focusing on on shooting stuff that'd be great for showreel, but just cutting showreels as well. And I've been cutting showreels for, for for a long time now that I've, I feel like I've got a real good idea of what what's a good showreel. Um, but early on what at film school, a good I, yeah, well, I mean, some of the things that are like shorter is uh, is better. Like you mm -hmm. want to give a, a really a great snippet. I see it as a, as an ad for your work. Um, if if someone's looking at you know, I've got a choice of ten cinematographers. Uh, the first thing they'll do usually is look at their list of credits, but then look at look at a showreel. Mm -hmm. Not all cinematographers do showreels, and a lot of them will get to a position that their that their work speaks for them, and yeah. that's not necessary. But for me, it's it's like I, I like to show within the edit that I've got a, a, a you know a storytelling ability, not just making pretty pictures, but mm -hmm. can really you know tell a story through camera movement and framing and then juxtaposition of images so I'll cut it in a way that kind of shows a little bit of a, of a hint at a narrative mm -hmm. um, but I also think that um, it's very important to um, only show your your best work and the kind of work you want to do more of rather than just everything you've ever done because because that will kind of I mean people want to see that you've got variety but they don't want to see that you've got too much variety or stuff that's not really in the in where they want to be yeah positioning their project 
And the thing that I was some advice I was given a long time ago by a, um, another cinematographer was that just load your showreel with as many famous faces as you get to <laughs> photograph because, well, because people look at it and they go, oh, wow, he, he or she must be good. They've worked with these people. And yeah. you know, if it's good enough to work with them, then they must be, must be good at what they do. Exactly. So yeah. It yeah. does sell. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, that's what they always but, say about um, um, film packets for film festivals and stuff like that. They're just like, list everything they've ever done. <laughs> that's a big name. Yeah. But yeah, coming coming out of uh, out of film school, it, I was I was very lucky that I had, um, it, it was probably one of those where the door opens in front of you and you leap on an opportunity. But I just finished cutting a showreel in the in the cinematography students reel, uh, sorry, cinematography students room. Mm. And uh, I checked my emails and there was this email that had been forwarded to me from a German production company that was looking for a, um, a DPs all around the world in different countries to shoot this international project where they had characters all interacting with each other. And they had, so they wanted to find filmmakers in each of those uh, locations. And mm. they were looking for an Australian cinematographer to shoot in Melbourne. Mm. And um, I was straight away like this, this this sounds amazing and so i sent my showreel straight to them and this is this was at film school so this is before you could upload it to vimeo yeah. what didn't exist so you had to post a, a tape and um the producers really loved my um my reel and uh, i got the the job on that and uh that just led on to so many other things i really i got along really well with the producers which mm. which helped and we we had a lot of fun together on that and so they invited me to come from australia travel to to Germany and start shooting some commercials with their production company Amazing. and um and I, was, and I was still just coming out of film school at this point and and I was loving it and I had such a great time mm. starting to do those commercials but I did have a point where I it was sort of that fork in the road where I knew I could maybe I could keep doing this and it'd be a great life of making really great money doing these big high-end commercials yeah. but my real passion was making drama and doing feature films and I knew that uh, staying in Germany wasn't going to necessarily lead on to that in the way that I wanted it to. So I went back to Australia and finished film school. And actually, shortly after coming back, I, I teamed up with one of the um, directors there and shot a, uh, a short film, which probably wasn't even my best short film, but we got along really well and we just had such a great time on it. And he just happened to be the first of the directors that I'd been working with who got their big break where they were offered a, a feature film mm. which he wrote himself and and got financed um and that was on the back of him doing a short film which was nominated for an academy award for for best short film which it, which he didn't he didn't win but it, it uh, sort of opened up all these opportunities oh, for him and he, he, he told me work yeah well what he said was brilliant was he so we flew to los angeles and he was at the uh, at all the parties and and he said that the number one question that was always being asked was well what's next or what's what, what have you got a feature what are you going to do mm -hmm. and he realized i've really got to get something a pitch together for a job and he had a he just had a little idea for one but enough that he could do the you know 30 second elevator pitch yeah. to, to people. And someone said, that sounds brilliant. Um, you know, when can I read a script? And so then he uh, started writing that script and that was uh, the first feature that got up. And for me, I, we had a really good working relationship, but it's not often that a, um, a studio or producers feel confident to have a first time director and a first time cinematographer yeah. do their first feature together. But um, I was uh, lucky to have, um, well, I had a pretty good show reel and I'd uh, just 
won an, uh, an award just when they were starting to make their decisions. It was, a, mm -hmm. it was a pretty big award for a short film that I did. And they thought, well, let's, let's take a chance on, on this team. And um, we got our first feature and, and that, that's really sort of the first hurdle. Um, although like uh, what a lot of uh, filmmakers will often say is that getting your first job is really tough, but getting your second one is even harder. I mean, unless, unless that first film is a, a breakout, um, yeah. you know, box office hit, then you start to get judged by what the last thing you did. Your first film, you're still an unknown. You could be that incredible artist who's going to do something amazing and surprise everyone. But mm -hmm. after you've done that, it's like, well, that's the best thing they've done so far. They can only get better, hopefully. Or, mm -hmm. or if it was a terrible disaster, it, it could very easily be the end of your career right there. <laughs> oh, goodness. That's going to be quite <laughs> terrifying, really, is that you're as, you're as good as your last work, really. Mm. That's, uh... it is yeah well that's something else that i've sort of learned over the years is that there is um it, it, a lot of it is about perception and framing that um just like putting famous faces in your showreel just gives people a perception that well you know they must be good if they're working with famous people mm -hmm. it's the same thing that if you've made a disaster you can still surely can find ways to recover from that i mean mm -hmm. the big studios do it all the time where they have made a a terrible film that they've spent a lot of money on, but they market it and they spend a lot of money on oh, uh, yeah. changing the people's perception and still people rock up to the cinemas and, and watch it. And it makes you know hundreds of millions yeah. of dollars. They put, they all, put all the, really all the good perception. scenes in the trailers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or just start telling everyone you are going to love it. This is, this is going to be great without yeah. actually it genuinely being a fact. <laughs> yeah. No, I guess, I guess, not everything can be a, a hundred percent of failure. You know, there's going to be some good, good lessons and good material to take out of there somewhere. Yeah. I mean, one way to look at it is to say you had a very lucky first few years, but the other way to look at it is that you consistently were just trying to learn and up yourself and work and work and work until you yeah. hit that point. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's very true. So you've got the job. You know that. Do you, I guess, is the first step for a cinematographer, much like a director, to kind of sit down with the script and just break it down? Yeah, to a degree. I actually think the first step is, uh, is I do read the script and, and when reading it, I see the, the, the movie playing out in my mind and I start getting ideas. But I think that more important than going to a director and pitching your ideas and your vision for it is to first uh, listen to the director where they're vision and ideas for two reasons one that they've probably spent a lot of time thinking about it and you want to be open to it and not already thinking well this is the only way to do things okay. but secondly if you're still pitching on a job and if i go in and talk, start telling a director this is how i see this film looking and it's not what they had in their mind then mm -hmm. that could be the point right there and then that they say oh this is not the right person to work with right so but, ears um, open first of all yeah, yeah. And directors, there's all different types of directors that I've worked with. I've worked with some that are very visual and will be very specific. And they'll say, I want this scene to look like this scene from another movie or this this work of art or this other thing that I've done. Or they'll even, I've worked with directors that have done test shoots, uh, on, you know, on their own back with a DSLR and they've already done some tests, particularly if it's a high concept talk about visual effects in it. So they've already already got a pretty good solid idea of what they want. They, what they're wanting 
me to do is then to either expand upon that or to be able to take what's their initial idea and and just improve upon it or make it better or deliver exactly what they're asking for. Mm-hmm. But then I've also worked with other directors who are just really they're very much about performance and the storytelling, and they'll leave a lot more of the visual, the, the mm-hmm. cinematography coverage, uh, lighting decisions up to up to me, which I quite I quite like that as well. Mm-hmm. Except if except if the director doesn't really know what they want and then you start doing something and then they see it and they're like, mm, no, I don't really like it. <laughs> that's not a good situation. Yeah. So, okay, say you get the second type of director, then someone who's like, okay, bring bring what you've got to the, the table. Mm. Do you, you look at a scene and you pick out, say, the highlight or like, the key moment of the scene or are you thinking more about what the audience is thinking you're like okay they need to feel sad at this moment how do I show sadness mm. in this frame yeah well it's certainly there's certainly all all parts of that yeah I mean it's something which I've started doing often is well as I'm reading a script is sort of identify key moments in it which the 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 writers obviously already thought about these things, but it's good for me to find my own little moments where it's the the peak emotional moment for the protagonist, um, or just where's that turning point? Where's that little moment where the audience it flips, where the audience thinks one thing's going on or it changes, and to to identify those points, then then you can start to think about different ways of doing it. You can look at other films and and see how they've they've tried these things. Mm-hmm. But I think one thing that I discovered quite early on is quite important is that when you've identified that key emotional moment where you want to have your biggest close-up in the film Mm. that's when you save that big close-up for that moment you don't want to be shooting a whole lot of coverage of your actor here and then when it gets to the bigger Mm. moment where this it's earned that uh, that shot well you've Mm. already kind of used that and you've blown it so you you can you can only go so close so yeah and then you also look at I mean sometimes and it just a lot of it's instinctual as well, but you'll find some scenes you really feel like it just feels like it should be sitting a lot wider and the audience gets a feel of the geography and the location, whereas other scenes feel they should be tighter. Sometimes emotionally you want the audience to feel like the it's, things are lifting or there's a re- sense of relief or it's the time for the crane shot or the, the drone shot where you to to, you know, in the same way that people's emotions are soaring, you have the camera do the same the same thing. So does does that kind of instinctual decision making, does that come with time and practice and just studying different films and that kind of thing to see how they're drawing out those emotions and that kind of thing? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It, it comes from from experience and just from what we learn and what we know and I mean that when early on in my career, I'd often find that I'd be emulating what other filmmakers had, had done because when you were work, then as with more experience, you start to find your own little ways of doing things and try out other other ways of communicating similar things. Sometimes I found myself gravitating to a certain camera position and just instinctually just feels right. Mm-hmm. And then later when reflecting, think, oh, well, actually that makes sense on a lot of other levels, psychologically or emotionally, or in the storytelling, it, it makes sense for the camera to be to be doing that, but it's not always something that I've consciously yeah. thought through. And do done you, that do way. you tend to experiment quite a lot? Are you quite an experimental cinematographer? Yeah, I sort of, I go through different uh, phases. I think it's interesting, as an artist, I think you do, 
have different likes at different points. And once you've tried something, maybe you never don't want to do that anymore and you try other things. But then also filmmaking is also, um, I mean, sometimes I've got a, a job on a production because of something I've done before. And then not that you want to recreate it, but you already know what works and you know why it works. And so then you just lock into that. The thing about that I find more and more, I mean, I've been doing some TV series more so than feature films lately and TV series, um, which I really enjoy and, and all the ones that I've been brought on to shoot, they've always wanted it to have a, a, a feature film cinema mm. quality and a look to it. But you're generally moving very fast, shooting quite fast. And so you don't really have a lot of time on on the set to have to start experimenting or trying out new things you've run you really got one shot at it and it better work because you're not going to get another yeah. you're not going to have time to try anything else so it's more of that experimentation happens in the pre-production if we want to try some a little technique or try something different mm. shoot some tests whether it's just getting one of the crew to stand in and yeah. trying something with the camera or whether it's something you can orchestrate a little bit more and, and hire a, a, an actor and, and actually construct something and, and do some tests in post. But really that's, that's the time to experiment mm. rather does, than. It does seem the, the trend nowadays, doesn't it? TV is becoming feature films, but in half the production time. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. But, but speaking of TV series, I know, I know you've worked on the luminaries. So can mm. we can we use that almost as a bit of a case study? It's like how sure. how did you bring to life that kind of 1850s visual? Like what was your kind of process within that? Mm. Yeah, well, it's first sort of it started um, when when just sort of finding the visual for that time period was we we traveled to a lot of locations. When we first arrived in New Zealand, director, production designer and myself, we we were scouting locations uh, for where we were going to shoot, but it was also an opportunity to start doing a bit of research and learning a few things. And I think a real key moment for us was when we went to the South Island of New Zealand, where the story's set, where there is actually, a, there's a lot of love for the book. So there's a lot of people go to this place, Hokitika, because they've read the book and they've heard about it. Yeah. Um, but it's a, it's a historical place, which where the story's set and there's, it's got an incredible history there. Uh, but they've got a little museum there and it's they've got the most incredible archive of photographs and it became that became our kicking off point was looking at the photos from the era and they were and they were amazing and there was a lot of atmosphere in them and there was a lot of texture and they're all black and white but it just really the first things we all identified was like look at the the way the the shape of the landscape is there and it's so rugged and it so looks like New Zealand it doesn't look like any other place and we really want to capture that and then look at the texture that's on the on these buildings and look at the faces and the costumes and just the dirt and texture on these costumes too. And so then that started to inform things. Um, and whenever I'm doing it, I've done a few period productions now from medieval to ancient Rome to twenties uh, and 1920s or what have you. And the first thing that I always look at as a cinematographer is just historically, what was these people's and these characters lives like in this place at that time from was electricity available to them then? And if not, then how did they light their in, their homes and their interiors? Was it all oil lamps or candles? Or did they have fixtures above with flame or is it all just on the tables or, and was it the fire? And and then I, I, and it's, it's a really fascinating thing that I really love uh, history. And then looking at how architecture is such a part of, uh, it's like so many places are designed for, for light 
that before you had uh, before you had the opportunity to switch and have a light in your room, it was all about windows. And so, so many places were designed with windows on with a certain aspect to get the nice light into the house. And some of them have windows on both sides, so you get morning and afternoon light. And it's just a, a, a point to. Um, I mean, that's the number one thing is a, when you're lighting a a, um, a production is where your light sources from. So, uh, so yeah, I was sort of really looking at the eight, it's 1864, I think we start. I can't remember exactly, but um, it's uh, it was all candles and and gas lamps. And uh, I worked very closely with a production designer Felicity Abbott, who just brought so much amazing ideas to the design of the interiors, from mm -hmm. the texture of wallpapers to the colors and where windows were and how light would come in and, and sort of together we'd start talking about how we can yeah. design a space to, to just look really great on camera. I've, I've got I've got to say I think with all the kind of modern technologies and lighting and stuff available it sounds like a bit of a pain in the ass having to kind of include the oil lamps and candles and all, all that kind of thing is is it really quite tough filming? or trying to emulate this kind of 19th century feel uh it can be yeah i mean we also we didn't want we really didn't want the luminaries to be a, a dusty musty period film mm. either we wanted it to be a bit sexy and to have it be really textural world and we still wanted to feel like a contemporary show but yeah. still feel true to the period so it's just ways of just finding ways to to do that without uh you know, it, and and the lighting isn't always accurate. It's not always just there's only one candle in the room and that's where the light's coming from. You know, that would become at least the, the influence of it and the starting point, but you know, we'd, we'd have a bit of fun with it. It just, it gets complicated if it's a scene where an, an actor, I mean, the director and I, we talked a lot in that project too. And we've done a few period films where it is about candles and oil lamps. Like we, we never wanted to have the the wee willy winky walking with the candles kind of down the stairs kind of shots yeah which that does start to get a little bit complicated and you start to build, have to build lights into your candles or you gotta have someone following with a light to illuminate the face because the candle well it can give enough light to light a face with digital mm -hmm. cameras but then if you expose for the light from the candle the candle itself is really overexposed and it's not really right. a balanced look so you try to balance the flame with the yeah. with what's happening on faces and so it can get a bit complicated mm -hmm. and it also means that your color palette is is limited within blue for daylight and moonlight maybe a little bit of green and moonlight and then it's just warm light for fire and flame and so really it's 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 a blue and red yellow yeah. world that you or in terms of lighting anyway that you are when you when you're working in that that time so in terms of color palette is that primarily your territory or is that a cross director production designer and yourself yeah and the costume designer too yeah. very much so yeah and and makeup falls into that category too um so it's it's part of it for everyone and i and i think it's it really starts with a conversation between well if the director's got some really solid ideas it starts with the director mm -hmm. but then the, it's the production designer that will often off, offer up a lot of color palette in terms of the space the walls the mm -hmm. The details the set dressing mm -hmm. and then i'm more about what light we're adding to that which has color um i mean if, you, if we're doing a modern film which had neons or fluoros or then you're introducing greens or reds or pink all kinds of colors can come into the world that way mm -hmm. but it is so important to talk about those color palettes and also just about the atmosphere in a room with the costume designer too because you don't want to be in a in a 
really dark room and they've got a dark costume and then they're like well we can't see all yeah. that beautiful detail that we've uh, designed i mean I, I, we, we all share a lot of images early on too so this is what i'm thinking for this scene and then the production designer's got sketches and concept art coming together and so it is a it's a constant communication Definitely. and if there is a scene which you're going to do something quite different then I'd always flag that early on with with all the departments to, mm -hmm. to say like just we're going to do something different here and hopefully we can do some tests in pre-production so we can see how everything works. Definitely. So based around the phrase fix it in post, mm. how much wiggle room is there to get things wrong as a cinematographer? Because I'm thinking kind of like in today's world where we've got filters and cropping and all that kind of thing, does that actually help you or do you have to get mm. it right on the spot? Yeah, I mean, I, more of my philosophy will be enhance it in post. I mean, I've, if you've if you've really a lot of things you can do, mm. but you can't make something that's just terrible into something amazing. Yeah. In post, the luminaries, for example, that because we did have a pretty tight shooting schedule, we were shooting a lot of scenes every day. There's mm. there's often a lot of things that I would want to do in terms of lighting that you couldn't always have time to do on set but I knew that what was capable of doing in post-production and knew how much time it would take or whether it was going to be expensive. And so you can, you can lean on that a little bit and make it part of your tool kit. Mm -hmm. I often like talking about color palettes, I often, or just, you know, in terms of atmosphere and, and whatnot, if you're lighting a face with a, with a, a light, which is meant to be a candle light and there's just too much light on the back wall, like generally you'd need to start cutting that light and controlling it. But knowing that, you know, we can do a little bit of work in post and we can just darken that wall it's going to save us 20 minutes then yeah. to do it on set then then that's a great use of of post so you see so there you too have it in the back of your mind as a, as a tool you say um so would yeah you, absolutely script supervisor or something saying oh just make a note we need to we need to tweak that yeah, I might do that, or it might just be something which I just I keep in my notes. And when I'm in in post production doing the grade, which I'll supervise with a colorist, then okay. that's my opportunity to say, hey, I want to cut some light off that wall. I want to mm -hmm. do some more beautifying to something within a within a shot. But and post production doesn't have an infinite budget either. You can't just keep saying, oh, we'll, we'll fix that in post, fix that in post, or do that yeah. there, because eventually it's going to get to the point where you've spent years. What we're going to do, and we can't do everything. Yeah. Which it's interesting. There's there's been a few shows where you'll where often. I mean, there was one a recent one saw a shot where. Um, in fact, I didn't even pick it when I saw the show, but it was some news article pointed out. You could see yellow lines on the road in the in a period uh, show, and they shouldn't they shouldn't be. Yeah, you saw that. But I I just know that. Well, I can imagine it must have got to a situation because they've they've spent so much money and done some amazing visual yeah. effects in there that it would have got to a point where it's like well. Do we have to fix everything and because we just that's going to cost some extra money and maybe that's one that no one's going to notice yeah until that comes out and then it's there's sort of a, a fine line between um perfection and how much can we get away with the audience not noticing i guess so are you <laughs> you're there through the entirety of post as well no not through the entirety but i'll, I'll come in for my um my grade which is usually if on, on a on a uh, on a movie it's usually uh, 10 days Mm -hmm. We'll have two two weeks of, uh, of 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 grading, and I'll get an opportunity to supervise some of the visual effects as well. And and for those um, who don't know what grading means, 
like in a basic sense, some people describe it as Photoshop for motion picture. Um, you can do all the same things, but it's also like, you can't quite do everything you do in Photoshop. You gotta be really smart about it, but it is basically balancing the images and you can you know, make something a little darker, make something a little brighter. If the red's too red, you can desaturate it a little bit there, or you can highlight, you can bring out people's eyes if they're a bit too shadowed. And it's a, it's a whole toolkit of things, but it's, it is one of those things that you could spend, you could spend months uh, yeah. messing around or playing with things. Or if you've done a really lousy job uh, when you've shot it, you, there's only so much you can do and so much time you can spend on something before you have to just move on and do the rest of the so so grading is like a coverall term for fix-ups and touch-ups and that kind of thing yeah in a sense but more specifically it's a, it's about just the, the overall balancing of, a, of the image and colors and yeah very exciting and then it's up to mm. the director to piece it all together yeah well with the with the editor is that's until the edit is locked off mm. I mean, sometimes we'll start early on where you'll do, start to do some look development, which is something we would do, but you don't want to be messing around with takes that aren't going to be in the final production or yeah. scenes that end up being um, being dropped. So um, it's yeah, it's not until the, the whole production is locked off that you'll do that. It's the same things. Audio would do the same thing where they'd be doing the mixing and mastering and cleaning up the sound and bringing up a bit of dialogue and adding sound effects. It's, it's, it's the same kind of thing, but for pictures. Yeah say it comes out it premieres all of that do you are you tending to be quite reflective about the work you do and kind of criticizing and learning from what you've done or do you just go yeah let's start next one no no i i quite like re-watching um stuff mm -hmm. that i've done yeah not everyone's like that some people think i'm a sucker for punishment why would you want to do that to yourself mm -hmm. but i but i enjoy it and yeah there's always those cringy moments where you think oh my goodness i could have done something better or different or i remember that day uh you know if if there hadn't been those circumstances we would have done a much better job and there's those little moments but no i think i, I generally take pride in my work and so mm -hmm. like to sit back and enjoy it and there's there has got to be there's definitely something to be said for sitting in an audience particularly if the audience doesn't know that the filmmakers are in the room <laughs> i mean ho hopefully hopefully their reactions are, are positive and good yeah but to fit to hear someone laugh at the right moment or gasp at the bit where you wanted them to gasp or just hear little comments of of wow or yeah. you know that that's that's such a joy good yeah. hmm. You say you're working more on TV now as opposed to features, but do you have a, is it a very different process to preparing? Um, yeah, I mean, I don't only do TV, but that's just what I've, I've had for the last um, couple of, I've done TV shows that generally take up a good part of a year yeah. um, with my work involved on them. And I, I do enjoy, I mean, the, the, where it's been different is that the shooting schedule is much longer um, and you're doing multiple episodes. Which, which can be quite a challenge and it's interesting. And it's, it's a real challenge for script supervisors for continuity and for um, uh, costume and makeup, particularly if you've got a character like in The Luminaries who Anna Weatherall just degrades a lot throughout it. And one of the things we said we want we needed to do within that uh, show because it does change, it does move between timeframes throughout the, the, the show is that we needed little signifiers that um, she was wearing 
her striped dress when she arrives fresh faced and then once that dress is gone she's in her red dress when she's turned into the small vampy her, her, sort of her journey begins mm -hmm. and then when she arrives uh, in Hokitika she gets given the pink dress and then at the end after the murder she's always wearing this black dress yeah. and so it became and, and also her and with each look there was a, a different makeup look and so she became the kind of signifier of which time frame we're in by what she's wearing and how she how she looks so that's something which which obviously needs to be tracked and, and, and really um, changing types of um frame and lighting as you go with these time jumps yeah well um certainly we wanted to light her more flatteringly uh, when it was appropriate and then make it and enhance the sort of degradation of her look with lighting mm -hmm. as we go along but then also we did we talked about um with with Claire, the director, we talked about different styles of camera operating throughout it, that it's a lot more controlled and smooth moving earlier on when she's a lot more stable and she's fresh eyed and she feels like she's got the world ahead of her. And then as she starts to degrade, we started, shots started to get tighter on her, but they also had a bit more handheld move or some of them are a bit more rocky or she's, she's often um, consuming um, uh, laudanum and opium and we wanted the camera to reflect that it's just not in, just in subtle ways not in too heavy-handed but I mean for me I, I, my philosophy is that the camera should always be reflecting the emotional state of the characters mm -hmm. within the shot and if there's a lot of energy in the shot then the camera should have matching energy if it's mm -hmm. if it's subdued and it's you know, a lot more stable then the camera should also be stable and so is we, that we um to simplify, is that moving from like a standing rig to handheld or can you move around on a rig or how would you kind of go about that? Things like that. Yeah, well, we had we had a steady cam on there. We had a, a um, gyro, like a stabilizer, a, a Ronin it was. So those are all stabilizers, which you can do elaborate moves um, quite smoothly mm. and then handheld when we wanted things to be a little bit more, more rough mm. as well. Yeah, handheld sort of like can get overused a little bit and can draw a bit of attention to itself but i feel like when it's at the right rhythm with the with the performance and the actors that it actually feels like it's got a bit more energy in the yeah. in the camera is the is the idea at least do you have did you ever have a bit of a nerdy moment with the with the tech do you ever go oh i, I really like working with this one yeah all the time <laughs> i do yeah, well, that's the that's the that's sort of the thing that I feel like need to be a little bit restrained with because you don't want to be using crane shots or maybe you do want to be using crane shots all the time, but like if you, it sort of has to have its place and needs to be used when it's going to be appropriate. And yeah, one, one thing I've certainly noticed with um, people trying to do lots of filming during the COVID pandemics is that you're suddenly watching TV and everything is just drone shots. Mm. People are like, ah, social distancing, here we go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan of, of drones and I've done quite a bit where I'll be a camera operator and there'll be a drone pilot. Yeah. But for, for me, I feel like that's it. the drone should just really be an extension of, of what a, a crane can take you to a certain height. Mm. A, a full scale chopper can get you to, can be, gets you to only to a certain depth, I guess. Mm. But um, the drone sort of fills in that space in between and can get closer to yeah. actors than a, than a helicopter can but I think that's also something you don't want to be overusing or getting too fancy and throwing the audience around yeah I guess you've got to um it's almost like seasickness really it's like too much and you're just mm. distracting from the storytelling isn't it sometimes you just need those 
stable, quiet moments. Well, yeah, because also often you don't, filmmakers don't want to draw attention to the techniques often. You want the audience to be feeling what the characters are feeling. And then if you start doing elaborate camera moves that are just, you know, the audience are thinking, oh, well, our drone shot, then you've kind of snapped them out of the moment right there and then by doing that. Do you, do you have a favourite type of scene that you like to film? Like, do you prefer the more quiet, dramatic scenes or the fun action scenes? Yeah, I think uh, I think it varies, and I like lots of different. I like a lot of variety, I guess. But I think for me, the most satisfying is when you do see that stellar performance that just really moves you or makes you laugh, and and really that comes down to handing over to the actors and and really creating a, a shot and an environment where the actor can feel comfortable enough to be able to give that. Mm. that amazing performance and it's often not that's not the most showy cinematography but it's often those the, the more memorable moments uh, when you when you think back on a film that you saw it's I mean um that's I mean it's a, a bit of a classic quote it's you know people don't always remember what you say but they'll remember how you feel oh, I think yeah. the same thing happens with cinematography they're not always remembering well how cool were the drone shots and the crane shots but they're thinking well that made me feel yeah you know, I mean, just thinking to um, your work on, say, Ophelia, there's not going to be that many kind of big droney action so shots in that, but very heavy emotional moments. Yeah, I think there's only one drone shot in there at the opening, and there's uh, we had a couple of crane moments, but mm -hmm. we we just we picked them where we felt like it really made a difference, yeah. and then the rest of it was when you're yeah intimate with the with the emotion and with the characters definitely i mean I, I tend to think of that film as kind of daisy ridley's first thing you know yeah you must be pretty proud to see her <laughs> gone on to star wars and that kind of thing now mm -hmm. well so she she squeezed that in between star wars actually she had she'd done she? she'd already done yeah oh i didn't know that yeah no i thought ophelia came up first yeah. what um qualities would you say are essential to doing your job it's it's an interesting one because it's a real balance between technical creative artistry i think it is it means a lot i mean it's important to have a real creative mind and to have a have a you know a bit of artistry and a bit of flair and you know want to do things different and beautifully and 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 create that but i think to be able to do that it's very important to be a good communicator mm -hmm. i've met a lot of great student DPs who do the most incredible work and I've been so blown away and impressed with them but then I see that they struggle when they're working with a with a team or with a gaffer to describe what they want or to to really you know achieve it on a bigger scale or because it's, it's it gets to a point where it's not something it's just you a camera and a, and a few friends that you're going to need to start bringing in a bigger team and then they're, they've got their people within the team mm -hmm. and communication is so key because uh, when you're when you're trying to shoot you know between four minutes up to seven minutes of footage or scenes a day you don't really have a lot of time where if you've communicated things badly and you need to change or make a new mm. plan you don't really have that time to mm. to change this. so you've got to be really clear about what you want I guess yeah I guess, I guess this is where it comes in handy having a really good relationship with the director I mean just like you and your your wife Claire like mm. you've got to be sharing this creative mind it's got to be in sync yeah, it does. And um, I mean, that's what it, for working with Claire, um, who, I mean, we did Ophelia together and, and the Luminaries, among other 
projects, but um, we do the most of our creative talking uh, in pre-production or on the way to set and really early on in pre-production when we'll watch a lot of movies together and we'll talk through a lot of things because mm-hmm. when we are on set she's focusing on her, her actors and then I've got to be watching her back and um, I'm either setting up exactly what we talked about or she'll be you know like you, you set up a shot and I'll I'll direct the actors and let's get this show on the road mm-hmm. and so it is it is there needs to be a sort of a shorthand of communication that I feel like we've yeah. achieved but also just knowing each other's style yeah. well enough that we know we've got our default go-to, what's going to work, or that she trusts my instincts. And but there'll always be times where it's like, "What are you doing? That's not that's not what I would thought you would set up. What's going on?" <laughs> like, oh, okay, I would have to, yeah, have a quick change of plans. <laughs> Can you leave those moments on set, or do they have to follow you? <laughs> uh, I think you have to leave them on set. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and but all the discussions they just they stay there. Yeah, although we don't really have a like cutoff time. It's not like we leave set and now it's just family time. Yeah. It's like there. I mean, not so much anymore. But early on, uh, when we were making films together, you know, she'd wake up in the middle of the night with some wild idea and want to tell me about it. And then I'd be yeah. like, Oh wow, maybe it's not the best thing <laughs> living with the director. Maybe it's better to go home at the end of the day and yeah, and switch sure. off. But but then also that's such a beautiful opportunity where where you just get to spend time where you can be inspired and talk about uh, things in a way that you wouldn't if you were you yeah. know, isolating separate, you know, in, in isolation, um, doing your, your thing. Yeah, definitely. Do you have any genres or types of work that you, you haven't touched on yet, but you're desperate to kind of work your way towards? Yeah, well, I, I have actually been doing so much period I know even the next film we're about to do is a, it's set in the 1920s. Right. I would really like to do something so far removed from that. I mean, I, I love a psychological thriller. I think that's what I'd like to be. And maybe one that's um, not candles and gaslight, but, you know, maybe a futuristic psychological thriller. But I think that's the thing for, as, as an artist, it's good to mix things up and change. And, and like some of the great painters, you go through different periods and mm-hmm. your blue period or, you know, yeah. What, what have you so I've been going through a, a period film period so yeah I'm, I'd love to try and do different things because that's the other thing is it's, it's actually pretty easy to sort of fall back on your on what you what you're used to and what works and yeah and that that definitely has its advantages in fact something I was I was talking to to Claire um director my wife slash director um recently that because a lot of filmmaking is like you arrive in the morning, you're really enthusiastic, you've got a shot list, you got your plan, and then you start doing things, and then inevitably things change, or someone has a different idea, and you sort of start to stray from that plan. Mm-hmm. But then in the last hour of the the day, and you've still got a number of shots or even a number of different scenes you got to do, really that's the time where you just often will have to just go and rely on your instincts or rely on your plan mm-hmm. and uh, and your experience because you're having to make decisions in an instant and sometimes you're having to make decisions for other people particularly if the sun's setting and you've got three shots to do and the actor's ready to do something and you know it's like well let's we just got to put the camera here and we've got to make it work and that's and that's really what um when you do rely on every little bit of experience and everything that you've learned and what has worked for you in the past and and what doesn't yeah work for you and you you pull out pull out all your bag of tricks and i mean that's i've had that happen too where uh, you know 
both the director and myself will look at the monitor and say, no, it's just, that doesn't look right. That's not, it's not really working. And it's, and it is exactly what you had talked about setting up and you've just got to make a quick decision. Do you just stick with that plan and go with what you don't think is working? Or is there something you can just, is there a little tweak you can make? Is there something different you can do just to yeah. elevate it and make it better? And sometimes it's, yeah, you've got a little, little box of tricks in your mind or a little physical box of tricks next to the camera that you start pulling out things or go to the lens, you know, always looks nice and, yeah. and do things like that. Well, I guess this is it. It's like, ironically, like you've broken down the film into these shot lists, right? Into tiny little moments. But mm. even when you're doing one shot at a time, you've got, you've got to think of the big picture coming together. That's right? absolutely right, yeah. That's, I think that's probably the biggest responsibility a director has. If you're directing a 90 minute plus movie and you start on day one and you're going down a certain path that when you're halfway through that shoot or right near the end and you're shooting a scene that's going to cut with something you've done earlier on, you kind of got to, you really got to be on top of where, because the, the, the audience isn't watching it over the three months that you've taken to make it. They're watching it in an instant. They're watching in that time frame. And so it is, that's your, I mean, uh, there's often been times where often we will set up a shot because I thought, oh, wouldn't it be cool to do something like that? And then when a director's looking at it, they're like, actually, because we've already had this emotional moment, this actually doesn't really mm. work or it's not, it's not serving where the character has come from. And that, and that really is ultimately the director's um, vision is that that whole emotional journey for not just the characters, but for the, for the audience and for the visual style. I guess kind of day one of filming, that's truly when you kind of lock in what this, this film is going to feel like, because then you have to just contextualise everything towards that first day. Yeah, to, to a degree. And that is often why a first AD will often pick and they'll talk with the cinematographer and director but often won't pick you won't start on the first opening scene of the yeah. of your movie on day one and it won't be the most dramatic moment that you'll start there it's usually something that where you can play around a little bit or it's not so uh, I mean sometimes that's that first day you end up picking up a shot that didn't you didn't get or it didn't work or it ends up being a deleted scene but you sort of do need to have that little bit of time to find your footing and for everyone to get in their groove and that's actually why I one of the reasons I really love the camera testing period uh, which is which is usually the week before mm -hmm. where you're not only getting to to try things out it's also when the producers and the financiers they start seeing the first frames of what the show's going to look like and they they can say okay well I like where it's going or they can say oh hang on a minute I don't that's not what we thought you're going to do which hopefully that doesn't happen but it's also a little bit of a bit of a test run for the crew and everyone gets mm -hmm. to have a little bit of time together without the pressure of being day one on set so well, it's, it's kind of the icebreaker yeah I, I mean yeah. everyone needs a practice day don't they mm. <laughs> so it's it's no, it's, it's great that they built that in for you because, I mean, my background's in theatre, so there's always a good, like, four-week rehearsal period mm. for everyone to become comfortable and to trust each other. I guess without so those days on the, on the film set, it's not going to... It's Well, it would make for very, very tough jobs. Yeah. Definitely. Okay, one one last question for you, just to kind of tie in with, with the... Our, our purpose which is what are the good bad and mad things about mm. for me the definitely the good is um as a filmmaker i get to go to places and just travel or even just going to places just 
subtle place like just recently we've been location scouting uh up in the the midlands um around stoke on trent and birmingham but they've been letting us go into these old derelict warehouses and buildings that some of them have been opened up for who god knows how long and yeah. just to just to walk through these incredible historic places and get the doors open to go into rooms that people haven't seen for so long mm -hmm. is such a privilege and getting to meet people that if i wasn't a filmmaker i wouldn't be having an occasion to have a conversation not just filmmakers but you know just you know people mm -hmm. anyone um yeah. i think that is such a such a great and a, and a privilege um, to, to have that kind of opportunity. That's definitely the good, I think. Mm -hmm. The bad, um, I mean, it is such a roller coaster uh, industry. You like, you know, lockdowns and COVID aside, it's it's like you never really know that the next job's for real, or you don't even know when it's coming. And there can be long breaks between between work, and mm -hmm. and that can be really tough. Um, and I've been on a number of projects. In fact, probably I've I've been attached to more projects that haven't happened than ones that actually have. And that can be really tough, uh, particularly if you start turning down lots of yeah. great work and then that one job that you've been clinging onto just disappears, then, then that's that's pretty bad. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and mad, um, yeah, I mean, that, yeah, I mean, all of, all of the above, uh, that's, that's pretty mad as well as good and bad. But some of the mad things that I like, there's times where I'm sitting there on the operating the camera or just waiting for action to be called. And I look around and think, wow, there's all these people here. Streets are closed and we've got, you know, people have kicked out of their street. They've got to move all their cars. And we're just for this one little moment and this, you know, everyone goes quiet, everyone's silent. And it's just this little mm -hmm. moment where the actor gets to do their the thing and it, I mean it's like theater for for a brief second as well and I think that's that's a, where it's just silent we're an audience the camera's an audience member and the, and these incredible things whether it's a big stunt or it's an emotional moment or it's just a little bit of fun I mean it's it's pretty pretty mad that you get these opportunities to do yeah, these definitely. It's crazy things little magic moments really and I think that's why so many of us try to be a part of this industry is because it's difficult to get those little feelings elsewhere. Mm, that's true. Thank you so much, Denson. You've been an absolute superstar and I am uh, sorry about the bad connection. <laughs> that's all right. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Good Bad Mad podcast. Please subscribe to check out the next episode or leave a review if you liked it. You can find us on Instagram at goodbadmad or at goodbadmad.com for additional resources and information. See you next time.